Let's journey to 1891 Germany. A frumpy old white guy in a large, light-colored, body-length coat, wearing a large beard and mustache, is in a public place like a market or a public square, putting on a free exhibit. We may as well go see. It's free, and it's something to do. And it's 1891. Come see the brilliant horse, he proclaims. <laughs> A mere horse capable of doing basic math and spelling. Hans, the brilliant horse in question, stands contentedly in front of a square wooden box that is angled upward like a short ramp. In front of him, this German fellow, Wilhelm von Osten, begins asking Hans questions that start simple but become increasingly difficult. What is this number? Von Osten points to a number on a chalkboard that reads 12. Hans taps his foot on the wooden box 12 times. What is the square root of 16? Hans taps the box four times. If Wednesday is the first day of the month, Von Osten asks Hans, What is the date of the following Monday? Hans correctly, amazingly, taps six times. Von Osten gives him a treat. How is he doing this? Many in the crowd wonder. This is a miracle. Others might have proclaimed. This is a hoax, the skeptics argue. What is going on here? Wilhelm is so great at the training. <laughs> that is the answer. Probably. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. So, this is Abraham. And Rhino. And so, this is why we do what we do. Or... Actually, this is why we do what we do. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> All right, that's Great. the best I can do. I am uh, so sorry if I like butchered parts of that. I looked up a two minute and 41 second tutorial on YouTube on how to speak with a German accent, and it was at least very fun. Yeah, I, I thought it sounded good, although I don't, I don't speak German myself, so. Yes. So let's get yeah. into this. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about clever Hans. Yeah. This horse, as we mentioned, was called Hans, and they became later referred to as clever Hans for a very specific reason. He's an Orlov trotter horse who has said to have the ability to perform arithmetic and other remarkable intellectual tasks. And the excitement around clever Hans, the horse, began in Berlin, Germany. Now, I mentioned at the top of this, 1891, which is one of the dates that I found. Another one was that this mostly debuted in 1904. Either way, this is right around the turn of the century, the beginning of the 1900s-ish. Known as the Clever Hans Phenomenon. Right. So before he was presented to the public, Hans was trained for four years by his master, the person that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode in our little story. His name is Wilhelm von Osten, who was a mathematics teacher. He was addressed by most as the first and most famous thinking animal. Hans, that is, not not Wilhelm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those who were the most skeptical, though, and there were many people who were skeptical about this, but those that were very skeptical included, obviously, scientists, such as biologists, psychologists, and, of course, medical doctors, really didn't buy into this and assumed that this was just a hoax. Yeah, well, Van Austin believed that Hans possessed uh, an intelligence that was equal to human. He would be seen, I, I heard and saw multiple times while I was like reading, watching these videos, that he was out in public like working on a chalkboard with this horse right. and trying to, trying to teach it language, math, and, and other things like that. 
That and that's important, I think, to understand is that Von Osten didn't he was not treating this as like a a trick or as a as a hoax or anything like that. He really believed that he had uncovered the key to unlocking the intelligent potential to communicating with animals. So he, he, you know, he really thought that we were just not accessing their language and that he sort of found a way to do so apparently in German. Yes. What sort of task he could actually do was pretty interesting. So there was counting the number of attendees in his audience, performing arithmetic operations, reading the time on the clock, recognizing and identifying playing cards, identifying the calendar for all the whole year and identifying artists. And what they would do is they would have him look at a painting and he would tap out the letters of the names of the painter that had done that painting. Or he would hear a specific piece of music even and he would tap out the name of the composer of that piece of music. Like this. You could totally see how this would just be one of those come here, gather around, look at right. my magic horse, right? Yeah, well, and he really believed that this horse was had this level of intelligence that he was capable of. But you can also look at this from these people who are scientists who are taking the parsimonious view and asking the question, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah, so that begs the question of how did he answer these questions? And it was through both movements of his hoof, but ending with a final click, right? So pick up and kind of like how a a dog would beg and kind of touch you, right? Asking for some attention, something like that. That's kind of similar to what it looked like. It would be waves or grasps towards something, but they end with the actual knock of the hoof. So that, do you want to describe that a little bit more? Because I know there was like intricate details with like certain letters and such. Yeah, well, so we sort of alluded to what this box looked like during our little skit at the opening part of this. It was this sort of square wooden box. It was pretty low to the ground. It sort of looked like it was the beginning of a ramp because it sort of sloped upward. And that was for the ease of Hans to be able to just reach out with his hoof and and just do a quick tap on the wooden thing. He would tap to either, either indicate a number, and it was like the number of taps simply represented the number, or the correct option to a question given. So, you know, just selecting one of however many options there were and so basically each letter of the alphabet had a numeric quantity assigned to it that just went in chronological order so a equals one b equals two c equals three and so on and he using this way of stringing together the letters meant that he could also combine those letters to form words sentences and and sort of even ideas and yeah there would be the the tap of the number and then the click to indicate that he was done sort of and so click submit button As you would expect, many grew skeptical that this was just a hoax. His master could have like merely trained Hans to answer specific questions that him himself only trained him to perform, right? Yeah, so if if it was like, what's the square root of 16? He tapped four. He could have literally said anything and had him type uh, tap four if he was just training him. When I, say that, when I say whatever the thing I'm about to say, then you tap four. And that's sort of what people were wondering. They're looking at this thinking, this is... You just train him to tap a certain number of times, depending on what you said before he started tapping. That's yeah. all. This wasn't it wasn't actually doing calculations. But what they found was so the people who would try and prove him wrong about that, and they were specifically thinking you just trained him to answer these questions, they would come up and ask him questions and he would give them the correct answer, even though he wasn't their master. He even cooperated with those he'd never encountered before, and they could ask him totally new questions that he would be able to re- respond to and give correct answers. And it is important to point out here, because I don't think that we mention it anywhere else in this discussion, that he wasn't actually 100% accurate, but he was 
on average, the calculation was about 89% accurate most of the time. So you did have, it was pretty accurate. You know, you're looking at a B plus if you're doing yeah. a, a grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got to bring back this point later when we're talking about what's really going on here. Cause it's interesting that other people were able to get him to respond correctly. Okay. So next thing would be, there was skeptical comments and such. And people were wondering what's really going on here. And Hans, yeah, and Hans and the German Board of Education uh, in 1904 set up a commission to determine if the behavior uh, of Hans was genuine or a mere hoax. Right. Now, just to point out, the way that you phrased it sort of sounded like Hans was working with the German Board of Education. It was because of Hans that the German Board of Education set up to do this. Not, not that okay. Hans was he, – he was not on the board. He, he was just a horse. So Yeah, sorry. Thanks, thanks for the <laughs> correction. Uh, to test his intellectual ability, uh, a professor named Karl Stumpf conducted a, a series of tests, and he was the director of the Berlin Psychological Institute. And among some of the professionals on the commission board assessing Hans, there were also school board members, veterinarians, teachers, a circus manager, interestingly, experts in horses and zoologists. I feel like there's a joke there of Stumpf being stumped by clever Hans. Ah, I like it. Ah, I thought you were so going to start with like... What happens when you put school board members, vets, teachers, circus manager, and experts, and, and horses, and zoologists in a room together or something? Or how many does it take to screw? I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. No, but I like the the pun of stump, stumped yep. by, by Hans. So Carl Stumpf was looking for any sort of evidence of cheating between either the trainer or the horse or the two together or some sort of trickery here. So my understanding is they've focused on setting up a couple key stages of research questions that they asked, right? Yeah. Um, so the the individuals on the committee that were referred to as the Hans Commission were assigned to observe specific behaviors and body parts watching. My understanding, yeah. So they were watching at first the behavior of Hans himself. So what was going on there, right? But then I, I, what I found is they started to focus in on uh, von Olsen as well. Right. Yeah. Looking at his head, his eyes, his hands, trying to find anything where he was cueing the horse to give a particular answer or uh, or like give him some kind of training command in some way. And, and so we have to I was going to say we have to remember like at this time, um, Sigmund Freud and like that line of thinking was pretty dominant. Right. So, yeah, people, people are trying to understand, like, is this some sort of telepathy that's going on? Um, what is it? Yeah. So what's what actually happening here. Right. Yeah. One of the hypotheses that was entered was that um, that's that Sigmund Freud proposed, as you mentioned, was that Clever Hans was reading the trainer's mind and was responding to their mind. So he's always offering up those good conservative parsimonious hypotheses that Sigmund Freud. <laughs> um, so what's interesting, though, about this, this commission that they put together, uh, they spent a year and a half investigating this, testing it, trying to find evidence of trickery, fraud. And eventually what they had to conclude based on their tests was that it was not, in fact, a hoax, that they had a real, intelligent, communicative, mathematically inclined horse on their hands. All Remember, right. this is in 1904. Because just three years later, a wrench in the machine. So 1907, Professor Oscar, Oscar, I don't know how to say that, Funkst, biologist and psychologist, explained the phenomenon after examining the horse and his abilities. Funkst was apparently a colleague and a student of Stumpf's, 
at the Berlin Psychological Institute. So let's break this down a little bit more. Um, yeah. The goal is to be able to find the most parsimonious explanation of the horse's behavior. That is the simplest one that holds true. That's just a standard thing we, we try to do in science. So, so probably telepathy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to like that was really funsty or funny or something, but it didn't really come out. Um, he was trying so to find funks, the function of his behavior. Oh, there you go. Um, so Funks observed that this indeed worked. And by this, we mean that the the effect of ask him a question and get a correct answer worked. So the more you concentrated on the correct answer, the better the communication and eventually the responses of a correct answer. So this, in a way, right, could explain as to why the incorrect answers occurred too. Yeah, absolutely. So Funks eventually organized an experiment that would rule out alternative explanations for the horse's behavior and fi- find, quote, true scientific evidence. And my understanding, there's a couple different ways that they looked at this, right? Right. Yeah. So he found that if the individual questioning the horse did not know the answer themselves, then the horse was unable to answer the question versus if the individual did know the answer when they que- when questioning the horse, this would usually lead to a correct response from the horse with and without knowledge of the fact that they were inside of an experiment at the time. And this really just goes back to the fact that telepathy is always the best answer. <laughs> so one way you could uh, envision this being carried out is let's say you had a flashcards, right, of like the actual mathematical problem. So you have four plus two equals. Um, you could hand that to the experimenter, have them look at it first and then show it to Clever, uh, Hans, and then like figure out, see what happens there with the answering, record those things. You could also just have them hand the cards directly to Van Elsen without Van Elsen looking at them, showing them then to Clever Hans and seeing if the correct answer uh, actually occurs there. So the question here would be, is Van Olsen actually seeing what clever Hans is seeing before he presents it to him because that could introduce some sort of bias or different reason as to why this is occurring. Right. And so when they looked at his face, you know, they couldn't see based on his hands, mouth, eyes, or anything else that he was making any sort of commander cue that could have signaled a correct answer um, to the horse. But what they did not do, which um, with Funks, which Funks did was that they, uh, they did not actually block his face entirely when asking the question. And so the horse and the quester may have been separated between the screen or having um, Hans wear blinders. If they did this, then Hans was suddenly unable to answer any type of question, regardless of how well the person who was the trainer in this case, if it was Van Alstein or someone else, um, regardless of, of whether or not they knew the answer. Now, um, Heisen, Lilienfeld, and Nolan in 2015 said, quote, in the 35 trials that the questioner was not seen, Clever Hans tapped out the correct answer only 6% of the time, basically guessing, versus when seen, which there were 56 cases, and the answer was tapped out correctly 89% of the time. So this eventually rules out the idea that telepathy was occurring, which, I mean, was a good idea. Let's just be honest. You should always start there. I'm being totally facetious. The reason I keep bringing it up is because it's just the most ridiculous thing that anyone could say. And it's funny to to continue to rag on telepathy because that should actually never be an answer that you use. But anyway, this eventually ruled out telepathy considering that blinders should not have interfered with the thought transmission if they knew the correct answer. So what was happening was Hans was an excellent observer and was able to pick up on observable signals or cues from his master. Now, Abraham, I found a few different uh, things that perhaps Hans was picking up on. 
let's see if we found the same thing here. So spectators, spectators and horse trainers couldn't even pick up on the subtle behaviors of the master. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. It was very hard for them to pick these sort of things up. So Hans was working for a reward, of course. Um, I believe these things were carrots. I can't remember the other one. And then occasionally some sugar cubes is what I saw. Right. And you can see these in some videos as well um, of him being delivered these sort of rewards for the correct behaviors. Oh, I thought there were um, no recordings of this. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. That's ooh, a... okay. I'm wondering if I saw real recordings or reenactments. One I know was definitely a reenactment, but okay. the others I thought were real. So, okay, I've got a little bit more research to do when I get back to this. Okay. So Hans was working for a ward, of course, so he could be sure to pay close attention to uh, his master's uh, expressions and such. And my understanding is that it was Von, uh, von Austin looking at hans some sort of uh facial expression with his eyebrows and some combination of him also like leaning forward that was starting to trigger this did you find anything similar yeah so there was like a head tilt that he would do um and a little bit of a lean yeah you're absolutely right that those would be the things and it was sort of the like you're close enough to the right answer you're about to get fed now some of these two were like these these expressions were so small they would qualify essentially as micro expressions we're talking about like tiny twitches tiny bit of like the eyes maybe opening a little bit wider i mean it's honestly kind of impressive that hans had the visual acuity to be to even be able to notice um that that these things were going on but yeah he would what hans learned was tap until i see this facial twitch and that yeah. that was all that he did. And then I get fed. And so it, you literally could have said anything that you want. And then whatever, whatever he would just tap until he saw whatever little facial expression, the little bit of a lean, the little bit of the head tilt, the little bit widening of the eyes. And then he would stop tapping, do his little like submit button click and uh, and then would get his, his sugar cube. And so the, the other thing that would happen is that now, Hans wasn't actually tapping like a consistent rate the entire time. He'd sort of tap and be watching and paying attention. It might slow down and see like, oh, wait, that's not really getting me the correct cue I'm looking for that I did this right. So he'd speed up a little bit, maybe get a few more taps in there. But like essentially what he was just doing is he's just he's just rooting around trying to find the thing that's to get him the reward. If you can imagine if I would ask you something in German and you'd just start like tapping on your desk – and um, you have no idea what I'm saying, assuming you don't speak German, but eventually you get to about the right answer and I do a little bit of a like a movement, you would actually learn to start picking up on increasingly subtle movements that I was doing that would indicate that you were getting the right answer, even though you have no idea what I was saying. Mm-hmm. All you know is that I gave you a sugar cube whenever you tap on your desk. And for everyone listening, Rhino is, uh, will work very hard for sugar cubes. Yes, specifically in the form of uh, chocolate, oh. milk chocolate. Oh, milk chocolate's gross. Dark chocolate's where it's at. But, <laughs> but yes, chocolate is amazing, generally speaking. So my understanding is all of these things were picked up on. It was pretty distinct, clear end of Von Alston working with anybody else since his theories and his magic wasn't really clearly magic anymore yeah he was, uh, he he was pretty unhappy to, about this research he, yeah because originally the idea was that it would uh confirm right that what he was doing was um, some sort of i don't know magical telepathy work with a horse um but At least it was proved that. that they were like intelligent and capable of communicating yeah sorry i was being a little facetious there no, no, so 
my understanding is he went on and continued to tour to ta- uh, to show off and work and demonstrate with his horse what was going on. But in 1909, he had died. Von Osten um, died, yeah. Ha- yeah. Hans was still around died. a little bit longer. And Hans was then handed over to another guy, a gentleman named Herr Karl Kral, I believe. Yeah. I'm sure I just horribly mispronounced that, and became his new master. So the goal then of Kral was to rebuke uh, Funk's argument in 1907. And I don't know if this was successful, was it? No. So Kral then established a research stable, which eventually turned into an experimental zoo. And in 1914, uh, housed other horses and animals. These are, you know, donkeys, ponies, elephants, um, that all quote, apparently had superb intellectual abilities. Yep. They had, uh, superb observing abilities is the way to phrase that. (laughs) Yes. So this was this all sort of signaled the end of Clever Hans. Considering the amount of publicity that the horse was given for his original talents, um, Hans had a pretty uh, drastic takedown from the public eye and uh, general appreciation. And some regarded as being somewhat unfair, even though I think it is really worth remembering how remarkable it was that this that van austin taught him to become so incredibly observant so much though that it fooled the researchers who were specifically watching von austin's face and concluded that he wasn't giving him specific cues and i think that what they were probably looking for is they were looking for von austin giving a command preceding the response, they weren't looking for him signaling the correct response once it had been accomplished. So I think that's probably what they missed. But I, I'm just speculating as far as that. Okay. In case you're still wondering, uh, so this all took place around the uh, 1891 to 1904-ish. So this was, you know, 114 years ago at this point. The horse is no longer with us. <laughs> should seem obvious but yeah uh, <laughs> just just to say hans died at the beginning of world war one he was actually drafted as a military horse we don't know exactly what happened to him um, some claim that he was either killed in the war in 1916 he died in 19, 1916 one way or another he was either killed in action or soldiers killed him and ate him for food somebody killed him yeah yeah we're not quite sure there so we have one other person introduced here, which is Otto Kohler, which is one of the first to point out that you should be really careful in how it is that you're conducting your research, approaching your research methods, in the, and if you're really answering your questions. So things like this face-to-face contact between experimental animal um, and the trainer could be what we see with Clever Hans, right? Like you could actually be uh, doing these things that you don't think that you're actually doing that are totally skewing your results. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the general takeaway from this is that you should always try and remove yourself as an investigator from potentially biasing the results. And so there's actually been many studies that that have happened since then that have still used this face to face contact. And therefore, many point out that the validity of those studies should be questioned because there are people who still have in the past, and I probably still continue to do this, uh, will will interact with the animal directly. And that could potentially bias whatever the phenomenon is they're interested in because the animal could be reacting not to that situation or the context, but to the, the trainer specifically. Perfect. So all of this story really comes to the main point that a person or animal's behavior may be influenced through these unintentional cues or involuntary movements by the questioner. This is like 
on the level of subtle that we would say it's almost like subconscious in a way, which is to say that we notice we are influenced by the fact that it happens, but we don't notice that we're influenced by the fact that it happens. We notice when people sort of open their eyes a little bit, move a little bit, turn a little bit in a way that that will affect how we then proceed in that conversation, even though we don't necessarily know that that was the thing that had us react that way to that conversation. Someone's subtle movement of like opening their eyes a little wider might indicate to someone, again, not that they're really identifying that this is what they're what they're thinking, but might indicate to someone, oh, they're interested, I should say more about this, and then they keep talking. And so then uh, this person speeds up their speech or says more about it or something like that in reaction to that. And they don't necessarily think to themselves, oh, they open their eyes a little bit wider, they must be interested in this. It's just sort of these reactions that we learn to become observant of those things around us. And so the whole story of this became known as sort of the the clever Hans effect. And this is sort of spoken about by scientists as the a a warning of parsimony. They call the action to always be looking for what is the the best answer. And really more than anything, you know, remove your own influence in situations where you're trying to do the scientific research uh, because that uh, becomes bias. And the recognition for the involuntary use of cues has made a huge effect in regard to developing better experimental designs and experimental methodology in subsequent experiments that have been done and research that's been done. And so animal testing being conducted, they now try and really put them in these isolated apparatus uh, apparatuses or these isolated containers, and then just use cameras. They'll put um, you know cameras in there so that they can watch the animal, but the animal can't see what their reactions are to their behavior. And so that way they can see a more quote unquote pure version of this animal's behavior because um, they they can rule out their own reactions to the animal um, as being a factor that's contributing to why the animal is doing whatever it is they're doing. Um, And then in addition to that, when you use a double blind experiment, which is to say the experimenter doesn't know the condition, the animal doesn't know the condition, not that telling them would matter at all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. There might be some telepathy going on there. That's right. Um, (laughs) uh, That will help. You don't even have to tell them. (laughs) Yeah, that will just uh, help ensure that you have believable, positive test results. And I actually found in some of the research for this, there's a book that is called um, The Horse We Can't Get Rid Of, I think is what it's called. And one of the authors is Scott O'Lillianfeld, who's this brilliant, amazing, skeptical psychologist who writes all these really good books, sort of debunking myths inside of um, psychology. Actually, I think we've linked it on here before, but I'm just going to plug this book really quick. Uh, There's a book called 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology, of which he's one of the editors or authors, and uh, and I'd highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in people busting those psychology myths, which is one of my favorite things. And, um, (laughs) And anyway... He was specifically talking about how the clever Hans effect is exactly what we see in facilitated communication, which, again, planning an episode on this, and it's come up before on this podcast, especially when we're talking about parsimony and some other things. But the in facilitated communication, you actually have something that's very, very, very much like the clever Hans situation, where you'll have these individuals who have not developed language, 
who usually have some kind of intellectual or developmental disability. And they're tapping their hooves, which is to say they're tapping a keyboard. And they mostly have someone who's sort of guiding their prompting, uh, their responses all the way through it. But they're reacting to that person's typing as if that person is the one in control of the typing when they're not. And it's not exactly like the Clever Hans, but it is a very similar effect where we don't recognize our own influence in these situations. And when the first wave of facilitated communication happened, the people who were what they call facilitators, they were the ones holding the hands of these individuals, helping them type. They legitimately believed that they were just helping those people type. Exactly the same thing with Van Austin and the and, and Hans. As he legitimately believed that he was this intelligent animal who was learning how to communicate and he understood math and he understood language and all this stuff. And he was not recognizing his own cues, his own role and influence in that behavior. And when those facilitators found out that they were largely just creating this, um, most of them just stopped doing that work and went on to find other means of employment and did other things. And so for them, sort of busting up that myth was was a really good thing. Many people still tried to cling to it. They were very much in the 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 Van Austin or um, the guy who came after him, the the her Carl Crawl, uh, that they're just like, nope, we're gonna make sure that we're right, gonna do whatever it takes to show that we're right, and uh, and all that's yeah. gonna come up when we talk about that facilitated communication experiment. But this whole idea of the clever Hans effect, this is one where we talk about like, don't bias your own research, is sort of the. Or be careful about biasing your own research because you know yeah. you might be a variable in there. I think that's just sort of the general takeaway of that. Yeah, yeah, it creates a sense, a false sense of like outcomes, and it just can perpetuate that that's acceptable, and just kind of perpetuate false information. Yeah, fake fake news, right? <laughs> right. So where are we at? I think it's time to wrap it up. This is gonna be a little bit of a shorter one, but. Hey, everybody likes a short podcast episode. Yep, exactly. So first of all, um, before we hit those final take-home points, we had the two Britneys that helped us out on this, right? Yep. Brittany Marie DeSanti and... Britt Bowerly. Yes. Thank you so much for helping on the show notes um, and creating these sort of things. Our take-home points are ready, set, go, Abraham. <laughs> Well, I think the biggest and most important one we've already mentioned is this idea that the, the Clever Hans effect, this idea that you can accidentally influence something that's happening um, without you even knowing that you're influencing it, even like really believing that you're not an influence. If you don't remove yourself from that situation or find a way to prevent your own contribution to what's happening, then um, then you can bias the outcome of something. And so, yes. you know, we often like to believe that we know we are really aware of what we're doing and the effect that we have on things. And we just don't like we overestimate ourselves all the time on that. Yeah, I've personally uh, found myself in a couple teaching situations where I didn't realize what I was actually doing was influencing correct or incorrect behavior. Yeah. It's super fun to experiment around with. The power of cues is like unbelievable. So if you just, I would ask people to kind of think about and just watch and see what's going on and like what is actually cueing behavior. Yeah. It is unreal sometimes to see what is actually influencing behavior. And these cues are everywhere. Like everything that you do, everything that other people are doing are cued. Um, and you can see these things if you just try to look for them, look through this lens. Oh, that reminds me that with respect to those cues, there's two different types of cues that really show up. 
those that signal when to do something and those that signal whether you did it correctly or incorrectly. So those that proceed and those that follow. Uh, and they can have different effects, and that's and that's why they're they're sort of different. But yeah, like like you said, Ryan, you're absolutely right. Is uh, is look for those cues, like see if you can find when someone knows to end a conversation because the other person has started texting on their phone. When someone notices someone else's body language, maybe even yourself notice somebody else's body language and you react to that, and you maybe didn't know that you were doing that, or other people are reacting to you and you didn't really know. So. It's a really cool opportunity to sort of self-reflect and then just look out in the in the world and the world around you and see where are those cues occurring. Where are the cues that occur that signal for someone to start doing something, and where are the cues that occur that to like signal that you did it right or you did it wrong that might maybe you didn't notice before. They sort of flew under the radar. Dig. I don't know what else there is. I mean, I think Your take homes. We'll just say that Hans was a horse, and Wilhelm von Osten was his trainer. And that he was wrong, that Hans was a brilliant mathematician. He was just a horse. He learned how to get food. But, oh, I do. Yeah. I, I think one, one important thing to end on that is that we shouldn't downplay this as Hans was just a stupid horse who learned to get food. Because it really, oh, yeah, was, yeah. It really was pretty remarkable that this horse was so impressively able to discriminate those very subtle body language and facial features and sort of micro expressions that he was able to tell. And that we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't had some people who were doing some pretty good research on this. So that was kind of cool. Awesome. All right, that's all I got. All right, Dig. So thanks again to the Brits uh, for helping with the show notes. If you guys uh, remember, go pop over, write a quick review, comment if you found this on social media, or check out the Patreon page. It really helps us out. And tell someone else about us. Think. Yep. And uh, it's not goodbye. It's see you later. We'll see you all soon. <laughs> This is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Cool. Ready to go. And of course you froze. Of course you would do that. Why would you not do that? <sighs> Come on, unfreeze, unfreeze, unfreeze. Come Caesar! Come Caesar! Brilliant horse! A mere horse capable of doing math, basic math and spelling, math, math and spelling. Is this?
Is this number? What is this number? What is the square root of 16? If Wednesday is the first day of the month, what is the date of the following? Following? Following Monday. Sorry, I... Sorry, it dropped again. I practiced my German accent in the meantime, and it's all recorded. Okay, I'm ready. Ease of Hans to reach out with his hoop. (laughs) (laughs) My audio cut out. Shouldn't be a big deal since we're going. All right, my Zoom crashed. Waiting for it to boot back up. Fuck Char and their shitty internet service.